Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. This is a best of episode with online methods Dustin Williams discussing some high yield renal questions from our 2017 Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, we are back with Dustin Williams from Online MedEd. You can tell we love Dustin and Online MedEd, not only because of Dustin's slightly edgy sense of humor and approach, but also because Online MedEd is devoted to changing how medical education is approached, how medical schools deliver it, and how students learn it. It's about the time where you're going to start your clerkships, so if you haven't gone to onlinemeded.org and created an account so that you can watch some of the best highest yield video lectures for your third year clerkships for free, you are missing out on what is fast becoming an essential resource for success in third year. The student testimonials speak for themselves. One said, online meded is amazing. I got a 215 on step one. Then I started OME partway through my third year and got a 255 on step two, literally because of this study program. And my favorite, the new gold standard for third year rotations, online meded is to third year as pathoma is to second year, an absolute requirement. Learn everything you need and nothing you don't. You can do that with online meded. We'll get right back in to the kidney with Dustin Williams. Dustin, thank you for the third time coming back and doing this with me. Uh, my pleasure. I love being here. I also love getting stumped sometimes too. It's kind of fun. Yeah. So I, I tried to, you know, pick questions that would embarrass you. Like that was my entire goal in the selection. Less so, um, what would be high quality learning? Good. Definitely a stump the chump. Here we go. Hopefully I'll be able to cheat something even if I don't get the right answer uh, any of the times. <laughs> and that's more or less a joke. I, I will say, audience, that I, no, we are committed to you know providing high quality, high yield questions in this uh, in this review series. But renal's a tough subject, I think. I, I I don't I don't much like renal. I will confess. I was just going to say, actually, you know, it's you're joking, but at the same time, step one can throw some pretty ridiculous questions at you. And I think renal is the one that hits it the most because they have so many details and so many different diagnoses and pathologic findings. And they can ask you so many different things that renal usually seems to be really hard for a lot of people. Yeah, and I say that exactly. I, I did research in my medical school on basic science kidney. I still don't know it that well. Clinical kidney, I got that dominated. Basic science kidney, man, that can be really hard. Yeah, man. Like I, I always think that whenever, uh, whenever I was doing rotations as a medical student and you know, you're on the wards and somebody's got some sort of kidney disease and you know, you're getting pimped and you're like, oh, this is obviously nephritic syndrome, right? Because nephritic versus nephrotic is like the binary sense in which you think of everything when you're going through second year path for renal. Um, and then you realize like the, uh, the kidney docs, um, they have a different way of thinking about renal diseases than the basic science faculty. At least that was the impression I got. Yeah, I 100% agree. I, mean, I even actually you know, coach people in the clinical sciences to stop doing that stuff. Like in the, for, in the basic science curriculum, I say, you know, that that might be for pathologists or like renal subspecialty fellows. Yeah. And it comes right down to it. I mean, cl clinical renal is really easy. It's pre, post, intrarenal. And if yeah. you're at intrarenal, call a nephrologist, you know, like right. <laughs> give them fluids, give them Lasix, put a Foley in and that don't work. Call for help. Yeah, you know? exactly. That easy, but not for step one. All right, let's get into some questions. This one you'll love because 
kind of harks back to anatomy, but it's a warm up. So a 30 year old man comes to the emergency department because of right flank pain. The pain is severe and began subtly an hour ago. And a urinalysis is positive for numerous erythrocytes. Structural examination shows tenderness in the area of the right lumbar, paraspinal musculature, and flexion posturing of the right hip is noted. Which of the following is the muscle that can most likely be used to localize this patient's internal pain? Whew, that is an interrogatory. A, the psoas major. B, the quadratus lumborum. C, the rectus abdominis. D, the rectus femoris, or E, the sartorius. Okay, so before I even attempt this, I do want to say that I always recommend students read the question first and read the answer choices, and this is a perfect example. All right, the guy comes in with right flank pain, and his urinalysis has got red blood cells in it. He's got, C- C- well, not CVA tenderness, but right lumbar paraspinal musculature. I, thought, I was like, oh, this is a kidney stone. Yeah. And I guess like the lumbar paraspinal musculature thing and the flexion posturing of the right hip, he doesn't fit with kidney stones. But I was like, kidney stones, kidney stones, kidney stones, the answer's going to be kidney stones. And then you're like, what, which of these muscles is involved in back pain? Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I don't remember what the quadratus lumborum does. Um, <laughs> The rectus abdominis, that, that's going to be silly. That's like going to be like pain from the front. Yeah, so from be, doing like, too many crunches. Yeah, crunches, right? Or, you know, I think this is supposed to be visceral pain. So I would say more <laughs> things like appendicitis and maybe like a colonic obstruction. So not related to erythrocytes in the urine. Rectus femoris is in the leg. That doesn't make any sense. So I don't know why that would be related to red blood cells in the urine. Sartorius hip flexion maybe that one because they tell you about the flexion of the right hip and then the psoas major wow all right so um i'm going to pick psoas major because that's literally the only muscle group i've seen ever have pathology in it in the hospital but i bet (laughs) it has i bet it has something to do with the course of the ureter or something like that because yeah in my mind, I see like, so whenever I draw the kidneys, there's like these kidneys and like these kind of loose hanging ureters that go to the bladder. I don't ever draw the muscles around them. And the psoas major is sort of in there. Their kidneys are retroperitoneal. And so is the psoas muscle. Psoas muscle. Final answer. You are correct. And I think, that, <laughs> I think not only was your um, anatomical reasoning good, but... Uh, I think the point you made that the psoas muscle is the only muscle of this list that I've ever heard have like pathology <laughs> in the hospital. Yeah, same here. So yeah. I think that's, um, while probably not the type of reasoning you want to rely on too much when taking, you know, your step one, you know, that can be useful. So, so yeah, you're yeah. exactly right as to the, to the reasoning is. So the three most likely places for a kidney stone to be caught are the ureterope pelvic junction, the mid ureter and the ureterovesical junction. And as the ureter passes along the psoas major, it, it passes along the psoas major until it enters the pelvis. And so it can cause some psoas major inspired pain as described wow. in this vignette. So so literally, literally did not know that everyone was listening. I, I, ureteropelvic junction, I got it, vesiculo, ureter junction for sure. Right? And then I thought actually the trigone of the bladder would be the other next place. The fact that it gets stuck at the rectus, I, 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 didn't, I literally did not know that, and I just guessed. Well, the psoas, you meant. Well, no, it's, yeah, it's like I thought, like, sorry, yeah, like I, the, the fact that it was the psoas muscle is where the stones get stuck, literally didn't know that. Yeah, so the good point there is when you're a third-year medical student and you're on your surgery rotation and you can't see into the like four-inch hole that four people are operating into, at the very least, just politely ask for a step so that you can see above them and, and try to get in and, and see whatever's being <laughs> operated on in the belly. So that way you can say that because I actually never saw a surgery. Like, I was asked to stand with the anesthesiologist during a CT surgery rotation. Yeah. And I was in like two belly surgeries on my surgeon rotation. And I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon when I started medical school, not by the time I got to clinical years, but <laughs> so I actually have only seen the inside of humans for the most part on CT scans. Very interesting. That is a fun fact. That's yeah. a, we're we're going to start including that in your bio when you're on. Um, 
Dustin Williams, who has only seen two surgeries, but is still a practicing physician, very successful in uh, the med-ed world as well as uh, clinical practice. (laughs) All right. Quadratus lumborum is just like one of those lumbar paraspinal muscles. I don't... Let's skip these distractors and go to something more (laughs) properly renal. So I think so. Yeah, I don't... I don't want to deal with this. This one is perhaps a little a little more, I guess, treatment-oriented. So it's probably somewhere between a step one and a step two question. So a 75-year-old man comes to the emergency department. They're always coming there because of flank pain. The pain began eight hours ago and has persisted since then. He denies nausea, vomiting, fever, and dysuria. His past medical history includes two previous kidney stones, abdominal CT scan, Dustin Williams' window into the body, confirms a three-millimeter renal calculus at the ureterovesical junction. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? So A, hydration, B, lithotripsy, C, renal angiography, D, suprapubic bladder catheter placement, and E, surgical removal. This one's pretty easy. Three millimeter stone. It's going to pass on its own answers. Hydration. Um, This is actually a really good, like this is a really good question, I think. And it's because a little bit of anatomy, a little bit of treatment, right? So um, the, I know the treatment of kidney stones is going to be based on their size and how how, um, easily they're going to pass on their own and then where they are. And they kind of didn't, and they were thankful not to give a bunch of these other things, um, you know, that you could choose between lithotripsy or endoscopic retrograde removal and stenting, right? So like, I think that's too, too advanced for step one. I think this is appropriate. And probably step two, to a certain extent. I think so. Yeah. Lithotripsy is when they're big, you got to break them up with some sonic waves Renal angiography would be for a, um, I guess, a renal infarct, and that would be pain, fever. Fever, I think, would be the thing here. You wouldn't see a stone. Superpubic bladder catheter is like post-renal obstruction, and it's only at the level of the bladder, not the ureter, so that's out. And then surgical removal, I guess, they don't make you choose between them, but that's like massive and really proximal. Yeah, exactly. I guess the point of this is just to emphasize the fact that stone less than five millimeters, it's observation, comfort, and hydration, Um, probably IV hydration if they're coming to the emergency department, just to help them filter more uh, fluid through their kidneys and help it pass. You know, in residency, uh, we would often give people... um, Flomax, which for some reason the generic uh Tem to listen. What is it? Tem to listen and doctors and terrorism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we'd give them that to help encourage passage. Is there actually any literature on that? Do you know? Just curious. It, yeah, there is. So it's it's a little bit more complicated than um less than one, greater than one. It's it's sort of it goes into if left if less than five, and don't quote me on the numbers, I'd have to look these up, but if less than five millimeters pass on your own hydration. If less than one millimeter, medical expulsion therapy with alpha blockers and even calcium channel blockers like the, the, the peens um, can be used to open up the ureters and help them go through, which mm-hmm. is the only reason in my mind a woman would be on an alpha blocker, typically used for BPH in men. Yeah, so exactly. medical expulsion therapy, is, try, is they attempt that when the stone is less than one but greater than five, and above one you start getting into methotripsy, stenting, and surgery. Centimeters, correct. Above uh, one centimeter, less than five millimeters. Oh, yeah. Let me just say that again to make sure I say it correctly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if the, the stone is less than one centimeter, but greater than five millimeters, I should probably just say it in millimeters, less than 10 millimeters and greater than five millimeters, medical expulsion therapy. If less than five millimeters, hydration and observation alone. And a greater than 10 millimeters or greater than one centimeter, that's when you're going to talk about lithotripsy, stenting, surgery. Got it. All right. So that one's pretty easy. That was another warm-up. And now that now that we've got through these warm-up questions, let's get into something more painful. Okay. More painful than even the uh, kidney stone that these patients in the vignettes are experiencing. I actually, I had a kidney stone in residency, and my residency was so kind. I actually got three hours off, I think, to go to the ER, get a shot of Toradol, <laughs> get IV hydration, and go back to work. And then I got Pilo. <laughs> right? Womp womp. Yeah, yeah that's amazing, dude. <laughs> I know. I know. It was, it was a bummer. It was a bummer. Did they give you more time off for the Pilo? 
No, no, they just gave me antibiotics. Um, <laughs> so get back to work. It's a yeah, exactly. You, how febrile are you? If your proteins aren't starting to denature, you can you can still work. All right, so <laughs> we'll move on. My residency was actually not that bad. If uh, any anyone from there is listening, I I loved my education, and it was not as bad as it could have been. Which actually, I don't know if that makes it complimentary or not. But at any rate. Next, a 23-year-old woman comes to the office because of hematuria for the past two days. She has no dysuria nor abdominal pain, and her last menstrual period was two weeks ago. She had an upper respiratory tract infection a few days prior to the start of these new urinary symptoms and remembers having similar episodes of hematuria in the past, but she never previously sought medical attention. Her UA is positive for moderate levels of blood and mild levels of protein, which of the following diagnostic tests has the highest sensitivity and specificity for this condition? A, a 24-hour urine protein quantification. B, a renal biopsy. C, a renal ultrasound. D, serial urinalyses. Or E, a serum IgA level. Let's pause for a second. I close the window. The dogs are breaking next door. I can't even hear them. And if they do, that's fine. We... We usually don't edit out animal or baby sounds. Okay, so I don't know the answer. The 23-year-old woman, they, they give you the menstrual period, so that's like, it's not that, right? So they're just basically telling you that this is really going to be in the urine and not just yeah. examine it. Which is actually something probably good to remember, like when you're an intern. I can think of times, even as an OBGYN, maybe for like a week, we'd get consults like, oh, you know, like somebody's got like, you'd see like somebody with a, a UA that's positive for blood, or it would come up in your inbox as a lab. And you're like, oh, no, she's got hematuria. And then people will forget that that's actually kind of normal for a woman um, for at least, you know, a quarter of the month or so. Or a little less than a quarter, but at any rate, sorry. All right. And now the, yeah, that's just true. And then, you know, she's got the URI symptoms and she's had it before. So I, this is like post-streptococcal something, something, or IgA nephropathy. I think I was going to answer serum IgA levels, but then the, you read the question. And the, the, again, this is important while you read the question first. It says, which has the highest sensitivity and specificity exactly. for the condition? And I actually wrote that down as you said it. And then I re- went, went back and like, thought about the question. And basically what they're asking for is what's the best test? And the best test is a biopsy. I exactly. think I would the, the next step is a serum IgA. The best step is a renal biopsy. You are correct. And um, that's like really good uh, clinical reasoning too, because I think that's something you would learn as a doctor, just that like pretty much all of these kind of primary renal diseases are the gold standard is going to be a renal biopsy, like tram track appearance, you know, blunting of the podophilic processes and minimal change. How's that? Uh, We get to it later. At any rate, renal (laughs) biopsy, gold standard. Gold standard usually means sensitivity and specificity are the highest of the tests for which diagnostic testing is actually available. So you are correct with renal biopsy. Yeah. And the other ones, I'm not really sure, like they're all good tests. And I think I actually probably would do them all right in a, in a person who came in with these. I want to make sure it's not nephrotic syndrome with a 24-hour protein quantification, though I'd probably use a spot protein. Renal ultrasound makes sense because she's got problems with her kidneys, we think. And maybe you're trying to rule out stones um, with so trying to look for hydro. And serial urinalysis, I think that would be the answer if they're going for, hey, maybe she's on just on her period. Serum IgA, I think, is the maiden distractor because I know it was like some sort of IgA post-strep thing. And that's the next step clinically. Yeah. The best gold standard. Awesome. So renal biopsy, yeah. What that shows within IgA nephropathy, which is what this describes, because um, she's got a history of episodic hematuria, the renal biopsy will show hypercellularity, mesangial thickening on light microscopy, as well as increased fluorescence on like IgA immunohistochemistry, which makes sense. And you would have to obtain that via a biopsy. So let's see, IgA nephropathy, it's, it's a nephritic syndrome, right? Perhaps we could talk a little bit about nephritic versus nephrotic because that's a a good um, kind of table of distinctions to keep in mind for step one. Can you help us walk through that? Yes, I can. So basically in my head, there's a tree and I'm trying to describe it. Someone comes in with problems with the kidney and I envision nephrotic syndrome being these giant gaping holes in podocytes. 
so that massive amounts of protein and even red blood cells can get through. And so the, the main thing in the urinalysis is going to be, yeah, there's protein, and, but then, yeah, there's blood, but there's mostly a ton of protein. Yeah. And nephritic syndrome, in my mind, are these tiny little holes that things can be rammed through. So if you've got, quote, blood in the urine and it's from a nephritic syndrome, they're going to be dysmorphic red blood cells because they got shredded going through those little holes. And that's not true physiology, but that's how I keep it straight in my head. Yeah, it's a good heuristic. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's nephritic syndrome, dysmorphic red blood cells, not a lot of protein, nephrotic syndrome, lots of protein. And then the syndromes themselves, nephrotic syndrome is going to be hypercholesteremia, peripheral edema because of the low oncotic pressure and massive amounts of protein. Got to remember those starling forces. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Right. That's right. Oncotic pressure goes down and all the fluid dumps out into the periphery. I think that's good for IgA nephropathy. Basically, you see uh, any sort of like URI followed by kidney disease. Like if those two things show up together in a vignette, then you've got to be thinking IgA nephropathy or post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, which is, I guess, the two most common uh, things we'd be thinking about in having on kidney. On a test, anyway. Yeah, on a, sure. on a test, yeah. exactly. Another lung disease related to or associated with kidney disease is also very popular on step one, but more to come. So oh, yeah, that, that's actually, it's really important to say it's URI viral pharyngitis, sinusitis, post-strep, <laughs> right? Yeah. But if you have hematuria and hemoptysis, that's different. Yeah. If there's gross blood coming from both, then <laughs> more likely a different disease than IgA nephropathy or post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. So just because there's some sort of general respiratory tract issue with the renal issue, don't fall into the trap of confusing good pasture syndrome, ah, I said it, with IgA nephropathy or post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. I have a feeling a question about good pastures may be coming up later. That's true. That that might happen <laughs> just because it's so, everybody loves it. It's so good. These distractors, what we had, I think you pretty much covered them as kind of like the rationale as to why we would get each. The serum IgA is elevated in some, but it's um, actually not very sensitive or uh, specific for IgA nephropathy, interestingly. So while done in clinical practice, it is not the gold standard. And that's why you really have to pay attention because think about this vignette. If nothing else was changed and the interrogatory asked which of the following is the next best step in management, of these here, there's actually, it's probably arguable what would be done, but I think most people would probably end up doing a urinalysis first, right? And then probably some sort of protein assessment, whether it's 24-hour protein or a spot urine to protein creatinine ratio or micro looking for microalbuminuria, and then maybe imaging, but like renal biopsies, like that's like never going to be your next step in management. That's true. It's almost <laughs> never the right answer in clinical medicine, which is I think why they've chosen it here. And a repeat urinalysis just to make sure it's real is probably the best answer for the next step. Yeah, exactly. So keep that interrogatory in mind. So... All right, let's move on from there to a 38-year-old lady who comes to the emergency department, where else? Because of shortness of breath and cough, productive of blood-tinged sputum for the past three days. She has been unresponsive to antibiotic therapy. Her temperature is 38 degrees Celsius, which is technically a fever at 100.4 Fahrenheit. Pulse is 92, respirations are 18, blood pressure is 110 over 68. Lab studies show an elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate and circulating cytoplasmic anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies, which is happily abbreviated C-ANCA. Urinalysis shows dysmorphic red cells and red blood cell casts. Which of the following antibodies is most likely to be found in the patient's serum? A, anti-centromere antibodies. B, anti-myeloperoxidase antibodies. C, antiproteinase 3 antibodies. D, anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies. Or E, anti-mitochondrial 
antibodies. Told you these were kind of hard. This is hard. Yeah. So this is either Good Pastures or Wegner's. Um, but Cianca tells me it's Wegner's. You know, it's inflammatory. It's an nephritic syndrome with dysmorphic red blood cells. It's a glomerulonephritis with the red cell casts. I was so happy that I got the answer. And <laughs> antibodies. All right. So I know that it's not anti-double-stranded DNA because that's going to be lupus. Correct. I know it's not anti-mitochondrial antibodies. That's primary bilirubin cirrhosis. Yep. And I know it's not anti-centromere because that's Kress syndrome. But myeloperoxidase and proteinase 3. <laughs> MPO reminds me of something, but I don't remember what it is. And I did this actually a lot on test taking. I wrote, hey, I recognize that one. Cool. I'm going to pick that one. <laughs> and, I, and I almost always got it wrong, but I'm going to stick with my insanity and pick B, antimyeloperoxidase. Oh, no. All right. 50-50 shot. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> it's what is now called granulomatosis with polyangitis, the disease formerly known as Wegner's granulomatosis, is associated with uh, C-ANCA antibodies and antiproteinase 3 antibodies, which was choice Literally C. every time. Literally every time. Hey, well, I recognize that. And yeah, that's well, why don't you switch it up then? Why don't you do a... You know, because go. I believe one day it's going to work. <laughs> that is the gambler's fallacy in many respects. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anti-myeloperoxidase antibodies are, are Churg-Strauss syndrome. In my defense, the MPO is associated with the polyangiitis. Had I not learned that Wegner's is now granulomatose with polyangiitis, I probably would not have made that mistake because like, it's the other polyangiitis disease with eosinophils. This one doesn't have eosinophils and is associated with proteinase 3. So that's good to know. The two granulomatoses of the kidney to remember... Wagner's, now called granulomatosis with polyangitis. No eosinophils. If you have the eosinophils, then you're going to have antimyeloperoxidase antibodies, and it's eos now. <laughs> why they changed the name to something not an eponym, but way more complicated, no one will ever know. But what is now eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangitis, which just rolls off the tongue, also called Churg-Strauss, has eosinophils because it's in the name. Covered all those distractors in very succinct order. So there's a historical note on this. Actually, Friedrich Wegener, Wegener who described the disease um, in 1936, was associated with the National Socialist Party of Germany. And professional bodies and journals have replaced his name as the eponym with the descriptive term because of his Nazi affiliation. All right, take away his credit on the eponym. All right, let's move on from there to... A 20-year-old man who comes to the emergency department, of course, because of hemoptysis and respiratory distress. His past medical history is significant for positive serologic assays for anti-glomerular basement membrane antibodies. His temperature is 38.8 Celsius, which is 101.8 Fahrenheit. Pulse is 100. Respirations are 30 per minute, and blood pressure is 120 over 60. Pulse oximetry is 98% on 6 liters of oxygen by nasal cannula, and his Glasgow Coma Scale is 15 of 15. Oh, good. Uh, good air entry bilaterally, occasional on physical exam, there is good air entry bilaterally. Occasional bibasilar crackles and scattered wheezes are heard on auscultation. Urinalysis shows hematuria and non-nephrotic range proteinuria. An arterial blood gas taken on admission shows a uh, PaO2 of 69 millimeters of mercury. And the question is, which of the following is the most appropriate initial treatment for this patient. A, cyclophosphamide, B, fosinopril, C, intubate and ventilate with high peak end expiratory pressure, D, nifedipine with metoprolol, or E, prednisone. Okay. Um, using, this is a poorly written question, um, intubate and ventilate with high Peak and expiratory pressure is obviously the, obviously the right answer or obviously the wrong answer because it's the only one that's not a medication. So it's, also it's either too long to be wrong. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, so cyclophosphamide is used in the treatment of good pastors, I think. It's, it's sort of like the anti-inflammatory thing. So let's put a maybe. Facinopril ACE inhibitor only used in inflammatory kidney disease and scleroderma renal crisis. This is not that to get off. Oh, and, and I should say they gave us anti-GBM antibodies, hematuria, and hemoptysis. It's good pastors. Yep. The, Sorry, yeah, that's good to mention that because – I yeah. was just like, oh, obviously anti-GBM. That's good pastures. Right, yeah. but. right. So, and, and, I, and that's actually, again, why I read the question first, because like they tell you right off the bat, this is good pastures. And they basically say, okay, how do you treat it? Um, they didn't give us a creatinine, so uh, I don't know what's going on with that. Nifedipine and metoprolol, uh, I don't know any time those two would be used together. together. <laughs> <laughs> They're both anti-anginals, so I suppose that if someone were presenting with stable angina, um, you could use both to control blood pressure and reduce anginal symptoms, but that's right off. So B and D are done. E, uh, prednisone, um, almost always the right answer, corticosteroids for um, emergent treatment of uh, inflammatory disease. So it's to me, it's between E and C. Um, I look at his PaO2, and it was somewhere around 70. Yeah, 69. All right, and he's on six liters. And satting at 98. So that's yeah, that's about appropriate. PaO two respirations are thirty. Um, yeah. So I mean, honestly, just as I'm trying to think of this as how what I would do clinically. He's alert and oriented. He's young, breathing fast. I'd want to see the pH and his pCO two because he's breathing fast before I decide to intubate the guy. But I have a feeling they're trying to imply hypoxemia. But man, you got like a non-rebreather and a face tent to go. Um, they didn't really sell the hypoxemia too hard, but I bet they're going to get it something to do with um, good pastures that can rapidly progress and da da da. So you'd intubate first, protect the airway, and then give prednisone. But I wouldn't give med- I wouldn't give prednisone. I'd give methylprednisolone IV. So yes. I mean, this is a tough one, and I'm trying to talk my way into either one. And I think I'm going to go with C. And you are ventilator. you are correct. And I'll give yeah. you the um, the distractors are a little. Well, number one, there's D should you shouldn't really have complex distractors when there are simple ones like nifedipine yeah. and metoprolol with single things and then a mix of procedures and medications. Right. Yeah. The point is they're trying to paint a picture in this vignette of somebody who has impending respiratory um, decompensation and whether or not that is done as well as it, it could be as arguable, but that's the point in general on multiple choice questions within medicine is don't forget the ABCs regardless. Like it's just such a crappy feeling when you leave a test and you're like, you remember a vignette and you're like, Oh sweet. Good pastors. I know that like, you know, you can treat that with uh, cyclophosphamide and, and steroids and I chose steroids, but then you're like, Oh wait, does he have good pastors? But he was also like, he was also not breathing at all or just had cardiac arrest and maybe I should yeah. put that AED on him. Right. Um, <laughs> so yes. So don't forget the ABCs. This answer is intubation essentially. Although clinically you may, you know, like you said, there are some probably intermediary steps you could do before going with the tube. Right. And so that, that's the thing that frustrates me. I, I, I kind of got the gist that that was the question they were going for. You know, if this was an 80-year-old person, respiration's 30 a minute, then I'd be more concerned. At six liters, there's a lot of intermediate steps you can do. And I don't think that good pastures is rapidly progressive like that. Like, it happens. But maybe he's talking about, well, I guess they say respiratory distress. And actually, if you haven't been in an ICU setting, you know, where the numbers are so deranged, I sort of have like a, a tacit, an intuition to numbers now. Um, these numbers aren't good if you're a second-year medical student. They're an NBD if you're working in a hospital and are in an ICU. So I guess they actually are implying respiratory failure in BC. I think for step one, the main thing is to know that good pastures is primary renal and pulmonary disease and anti-GBM antibodies, right? I, I'm trying to think. Like I would say those are the highlights. So Yeah, so it's, it's good pastures. Anti-GBM, hemoptysis, hematuria, Wegener's, hemoptysis, hematuria, and something to do with the sinus passages, C. anca, and apparently now also protonase 3. <laughs> we'll just keep reviewing that. And, and really, when it comes to studying renal for step one level, 
diagnosis is going to be way more important. Your ability to recognize and diagnose these syndromes than uh, knowing how to treat them. Um, so if if you're you know a couple of weeks away and you feel like renal is your weak point, um, focus on those highlights and and recognizing what you need to in order to diagnose these diseases. Anything else to say? You think about good pastors. Yeah, literally hemoptysis hematuria GBM. <laughs> All right, cool. If only it were always that easy. Uh, okay, 20-year-old guy comes to the office because he has been getting short of breath during his usual exercise routine. He reports seeing blood in his urine a few times in the last month and has noticed that his eyes tend to swell for no apparent reason. His serum creatinine is 2.5 and blood urea nitrogen is 26. Which of the following would most likely be seen on histologic examination of a renal specimen? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the biopsy result, right? Things that, that I'm sure you think about that keep you up at night. A, crescent shape of the glomeruli. B, increased density of the mesangium. C, lipid droplets. D, subendothelial deposits. Or E, a tram tracking of the basement membrane okay i do not know this answer um i thought crescentic uh, focal segmental sensor something it's something with hiv and hep c it doesn't have any of that um increased density of the mesangium uh i don't know what that means lipid droplets um so that's focal segmental glomerulosclerosis yes Crescentic something, 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 something. I forget what that's related to. Subendothelial deposits. I think that's actually like immune complex deposition. Yes. And then tram tracking. Tram is like a very specific thing. It's some member of proliferative glomerulonephritis. Yep. So I remember what three of these things might be associated with. And the kid is 20 and he has exercise induced hematuria with nephrotic syndrome i was actually looking for minimal change disease honestly yeah <laughs> because he was sort of young his, and his eye what he said his eyes tend to swell for no apparent reason i'm not even going to take a stab at this because i'd be randomly guessing i literally do not have any idea all right so, I go, oh wait maybe it's which one of these is nephrotic syndrome no no they're all they're all nephrotic syndrome. i don't know no i don't know crescent shape of the glomeruli because this guy has good pastor's syndrome what i know what they're saying because he's getting short of breath right during his usual exercise routine so they're adding the exercise routine because i think they're trying to make you not think he's got respiratory issues and then he's seeing seeing his blood in his urine a few times in the last month so if you notice actually i think this is very illustrative not to um point out your faults but you said he has exercise induced hematuria that is not like exactly what this says, but, oh, yeah. I but definitely yeah. Yeah. what we do a lot of times when we're reading vignettes, right? Because yep. exercise is the end of one sentence, and then they're mentioning hematuria. It's very easy to read quickly and, and to make that association, and, and then that can change the whole thought process. Now, granted, you're not reading these, so... Yeah, but I wrote down exercise-induced... Hematuria <laughs> as like the summary of what you were saying. So I totally did that. I mean, you're human. We all make mistakes. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that is a good point though. Like just be careful, like missing a small insignificant word, like a no, um, uh, can be mm -hmm. very uh, consequential. Yeah. Your eyes, as you read, if you learn to read quickly, you are, your, your brain interprets words that aren't there to connect them. Yeah. And the test is not supposed to do that things to you, but they might actually put an up and a, or a down and a no, that's actually super important. Right. And you blow over it because you've already locked in the diagnosis. I had no idea what was going on. So I was trying to like summarize the, the major points as you were reading. And it, um, I just, I actually, I still wouldn't have gotten it right, by the way. So, but, <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I did. I definitely made that mistake. And that's, that's, that can be potentially dangerous. Yeah. So I actually, this is a problem I personally had. So here's some practical advice. I mean, this sounds like, like, no, duh. But when it came to in-house tests in medical school, I noticed a lot of times when we'd go to the test reviews, the things I would miss would be just that. Like, I didn't read 
the last word on the second line of a vignette, which was super important, or I didn't read the no, and I interpreted the statement, whatever it was, as positive, or I did some sort of cognitive elision between one sentence and another and created my own vignette in my mind that wasn't the vignette on the page. So what I started doing when it came to test-taking pretty much for the most part, just as habit, I'd follow the vignette with like a, a pointer, like a pencil or a pen. I don't know if I still do that. I haven't had to take a written test in thankfully like two years. But you know, if you find yourself doing that, uh, the U world or other QBank questions that you miss, I either really slow down or I guess follow along the vignette with like a pointer to keep yourself or to encourage yourself to be more active. Or if you feel confused, because that was another thing. Sometimes, and you can't take long to do this, but I would get to the end of a question and I would feel like Dustin just described like, oh man, I have no idea. And if you have no idea, sometimes that is just maybe you didn't study that you don't remember, but sometimes it is because you missed something. So it's not a bad idea to systematically, if you have that sort of sense of, oh man, I'm so confused. Go back and read the vignette real slowly, line by line. And then if you get to the end of it and you don't have an answer, then guess and move on. Because I think I've definitely picked up. I think that's actually the good advice right there, right? When I reach to the end of something, especially in the new tests, and I'm like, what? (laughs) I would just put C, flag it to review at the end, move on. I wouldn't even reread. Um, I think that that question would uh, take too long to go over again. And I'll be honest, as I've developed my skills in question writing, I've also developed my skills in question taking. Absolutely. Um, I finished my internal medicine boards in something like three hours, and it's a nine-hour exam. I would read the question first, read the answer choices, and then just go through the, the vignette, picking up the things that I needed. And no doubt, I missed, I messed something, right? Like, I messed up because I just did it here. But I was so good at it that I could, you know, my failure rate was so low that it didn't matter, right? So I can get through the test very quickly. And if I came upon those, what the f- are you talking about? I would just put C, flag it, move on. And at the end of the block of questions, I can go back to the flags. Yeah. Um, and there's usually two or three. And I, I would do that. I would read it slow. I know I've got a lot of time left in my block. I'm done. I'm not going to waste time on this question. So I would really go slow through it. And I think almost always, it was just something I didn't know, or the right answer was a word I didn't recognize, yep. like serum immunofixation for an SPEP. Yeah, I wanted an SPEP. There's SPEP. I, I think you brought that up in our last interview. You're still bitter over that. <laughs> All right. So really quick, the increased density of the mesangium, that was choice B. That is associated with membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis. So you're looking for massive proteinuria, hypoalbuminemia, and edema with that. Lipid droplets, that's associated with focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. I said the wrong word. Yes, sclerosis, that's right. No, actually, I think you said the correct one, because I usually say focal, seg- in my mind, I'm always thinking focal segmental glomerulonephritis. Right, sclerosis. It is sclerosis. D, subendothelial deposits. You are right. It was immune. It has something to do with immune <laughs> complex deposition. Also, membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis. And tram track of the basement membrane. Guess where that's expected? Membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, uh, which is, I think, just a visual description of the subendothelial deposits. It's interesting because I think you said glomerulonephritis glomerulonephritis three times with three different answers. Yeah, because I think it's just uh, what's seen on histologic examination of a kidney biopsy specimen, these three kind of things, subendothelial deposits, so-called tram tracking of the basement membrane, and mesangial expansion or increased density of the mesangium. Like those are all features of membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis. What is with renal and how long all their diseases and terms are? Well, what I was going to say is if you were well studied and you knew that three of the answers corresponded to the same diagnosis, you Mm -hmm. could strike them all off instantaneously and drop this down to A versus C. Now, I did not know that, so it didn't help me. But if you have recently looked at a table of the biopsy findings, this would actually be a pretty easy question because without even having the vignette, you're between A and C. Absolutely. So 
that's excellent strategy as well. But mainly this is vocab because I, you aren't looking at these beforehand, but I'm doing a quick review of some renal things before we talk because Again, as I probably say it on every podcast, I am just an OBGYN. So rapidly progressive nephritis, all these uh, nephritides, glomerulosclerosis, not my world, thankfully. Although my best friend wanted to do a renal fellowship, and I think there's something wrong with him. It's only two years. Well, that's true. That's nice. One more, because it's essential that we have to discuss this. A 15-year-old girl comes to the office because of blood in her urine for a day. She says she's also noticed that her ankles are swollen and that she's never experienced anything like this before. Medical history includes a sore throat approximately two weeks ago. Her temperature is 36.8 degrees Celsius, which is 98 Fahrenheit. Pulse is 87. Respirations are 18 per minute. And her blood pressure is 145 over 92. Examination shows... One plus lower leg edema bilaterally. And the interrogatory is which of the following serum studies is most likely to be elevated? A. Amyloid. B. Antiglomerular basement membrane antibodies. C. Antistreptolysin O. D. Complement. Or E. Immunoglobulin A. Okay, I actually thought this was going to be preeclampsia. I couldn't understand why we were talking about renal disease. But this makes sense. Um, we're in the <laughs> renal section. Blood pressure is elevated, lower leg edema. And she's not so she's, pregnant. Right. Or at and least yeah, we don't know that she is. Oh, yeah. We hope that a UPT has been done. So this is um, the same thing, the sore throat, the pharyngitis with um, now some sort of protein, kidney disease. And sore throat URI plus kidney disease, as we talked before, is either IgA nephropathy or post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. Since we already had a question on IgA nephropathy, I bet this is post-streptococcal <laughs> glomerulonephritis. So, if only it were that easy on uh, step yeah, one. Yeah, right. So the, 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 the true thing, so if I didn't, we, we didn't already have a question, um, I'd be talking about getting um, serum immunoglobulin A levels versus the anti-streptolysin O, um, serum immunoglobulin A for IgA nephropathy, and then anti-streptolysin O for post-strep. Amyloid deposition is going to be in people with amyloidosis or people who are on dialysis, old people. That's not that. Antiglomerular basement membrane, as we discussed, is good pastors. There needs to be hemoptysis and hematuria. Complement and kidney disease is usually associated, I think, with things like immune deposition, like lupus, and a complement level would be decreased. decreased. Yeah. And so the question asks, which is likely to be elevated? So really, it's basically which of these tests is going to give you the answer. The pharyngitis versus the URI is helpful because strep causes strep throat, which is a pharyngitis, so I would pick anti-streptolysin O. But I think we even learned earlier in the podcast, serum IgA doesn't necessarily increase in IgA nephropathy. So even if you couldn't choose between the two, you still should pick anti-streptolysin O. And you are correct. Look at that. Look at that. So yes, important highlights. Post-strep glomerulonephritis, 10 to 14 days, develops after a group A beta-hemolytic streptococcal infection, usually of the upper respiratory tract, i.e. pharyngitis, or skin infection, which has multiple names like a cellulitis or erysipelas or impetigos also, I think, caused by strep as well, right? So serum levels of antistreptin lysin O will be elevated. And I would say that's probably the most important things to know for post-strep glomerulonephritis. What we did forget to mention, though, was that um, IgA nephropathy is also called Berger's disease. I, I totally forgot to mention that. And it's the most common cause of glomerulonephritis worldwide. So that was choice E. That can be the, the take-home for this renal section there are many, many more renal diseases that we could go through, but we will leave it there for now. Because I got to be honest, I'm pretty burned out. I mean, this is me a too. really hard one. This yeah, is like kidney is hard, and so I need people to hear that. Hey, if you're struggling with pathology in the kidney, don't worry about it. It's hard. So yeah, <laughs> sometimes it may not be worth the squeeze, right? You got like probably one giant table and first aid that's there, and and if you're looking at it, being like that's a whole lot to remember you're probably not going to get a whole lot of questions just on glomerulonephritis. So try to remember like 
the hematuria, hemoptysis, good pastures, hematuria, hemoptysis, and the sinus drag, Wagner's, and it's <laughs> strep throat plus kidney thing, post streptococcal glomerulonephritis, anti. And so, right, like, yeah. try to get this just those loose word associations. And even if you get burned by it, man, the time you save trying to actually memorize all this stuff, I, I don't think it's worth the squeeze in the test. I mean, we probably should have mentioned something about minimal change disease. Um, Pediatrics. Pediatric nephrotic syndrome with effacement of the podocyte foot processes. That's what I was trying to think of earlier. There we go. Yeah, that's right. But... Uh, Dustin, thank you so much. I can't wait till we can get into some third year content probably in a couple months. What's your favorite subject like to teach? That's a um internal medicine. <laughs> uh that's unfair though. How about uh, by organ system? <laughs> you know, I don't really have um, a favorite one. Um I've oh, turned come out on. to but the ones that I actually like to teach the most in clinical medicine are going to be cardiology and nephrology. One cardiology because I've pretty much been regulated to the cardiac <laughs> floor. So we see it a lot. And I yeah. think heart failure is really complicated. And two, kidney clinical medicine, because I have my Katrina switch advanced organizer, uh, it can be used to explain uh, lots of dis disorders of sodium, potassium, renal failure, hypertension, CHF. Uh, so the, the same advanced organizer, the same picture can be used in multiple ways to describe lots of things. And I actually like showing students that this one picture is the foundation for like nine of different diseases of all that I know about. And if you can just own the system, this one picture, you can treat multiple diseases. So yeah. And, and you did kind of actually go through that in our, um, our prior podcast that we did on endocrine. So check yeah. that one out. And don't forget, once you finish step one and you have your three days to recover before going to the wards, go to onlinemeta.org and sign up for a premium account. And tell them inside the board sent you so that the good love and goodwill continues. Thanks. Sounds good to me. All right. Great well, being here. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And thanks to James from 2 O'Clock Courage for letting us use the opening track, which is the Valentine Blast Furnace off 2016's album Missalette. You can check 2 O'Clock Courage, the best band you've never heard of, at 2 O'Clock Courage. Com or on iTunes or Spotify. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.